Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Project Manager for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is Jesus, the works of Jesus, and specifically the deeds of Jesus that are mentioned in the Nicene Creed. My guest in studio today is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary. Thanks for being here, Daryl. My pleasure. It's good to be in this season of that one. <laughs> well, we are in a series on the Nicene Creed. This is the third part in our series where we're kind of walking through the things that Christians believe. And many Christians affirm their faith um, through reciting the Nicene Creed, uh, many people weekly. And we'd like you to help us unpack some of the things that the Creed talks about in terms of the works of Jesus. And so let's take a look at these uh, things that the Nicene Creed mentions about what Jesus did. The section we're talking about today starts out like this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And so one of the key parts of this creed um, is all about Jesus, because there was a, a lot of discussion about uh, who Jesus was and uh, how he's related to um, God the Father, um, even the Holy Spirit. So this starts out by saying that uh, for us and our salvation was, was the point of Jesus coming. How do we see Jesus' mission presented in the Gospels? Well, uh, just to set some context, we're in the second portion of this creed, which is uh, confess that Jesus is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and mm -hmm. he's the Son of God. Uh, this is, uh, we believe in one God, and then it talks about the Father Almighty, then the Son, and it goes on to talk about the Spirit. And in the first part, it's talked about the person of Jesus because of uh, the uh, challenge of Arianism, really, and it's designed to articulate the Trinitarian belief of orthodoxy and place the Son in that conversation. Mm. And so this section is part two of the discussion of Jesus. Part one dealt with his person, saying things like he is uniquely related to the Father as Son, that he, assumes the sh he shares the same essence as the Father. Uh, and thus is um, uh, truly God. And now that's underscored by the career of his actual ministry. So, so we start off with this emphasis on, on, uh, on where he has, has come from, that he, that he has become incarnate and has come to earth. And all this is being done so that we can um, enter into a restored relationship with the living God. When it says for us and for our salvation, we're talking about this restored relationship with God that is a core part of what it means to be saved, to be delivered, if you will, and to um, be brought back into fellowship with the living God. And although it's interesting, in the confession there's not anything explicitly about 
about sin and the cross and how that works. I mean, it's alluded to certainly in his dying and suffering. Um, there, uh, there's no specific language about the soteriological details of how that works. Um, this is the affirmation that Jesus is the key to salvation and that our salvation is um, a direct result of his work on our behalf as the one who takes our place and who bears sin for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for us and for our salvation, we see Jesus um, coming as a suffering servant? Yes, as in part. Yes, he's coming as a suffering servant. He comes as the Messiah. He comes in the creed as the Son of God who takes on humanity. Um, probably in the background here are texts like Philippians 2 where it talks about him emptying himself and taking on humanity in order, in order to do uh, the work of God. Of course, that's part of an exhortation to be humble mm -hmm. in the way we live, much in the way God has condescended to take on humanity uh, in the person of his son. Mm -hmm. And how, like how the angel told uh, Joseph that Mary would give birth to a son and he would save his people from their sins. Exactly. So we've got this emphasis on, on this divine saving activity, um, and because this is a creed and it's crisp and short, uh, a lot of the details that go underneath it are not filled in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, then it starts talking about the incarnation a little bit more. The, the creed includes the idea that, that he came down from heaven, and it reminds us of Jesus being uh, the one who descended in, in Ephesians 4. Mm -hmm. um, where do we see Jesus indicating that he came from heaven? Well, the clearest passage really for this probably is John 1, the idea that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm -hmm. And then uh, later on it says, and the Word became, there's our verb, mm. became flesh. Mm -hmm. So so the idea here uh, is this idea of you had this preexistent Word who was um, disembodied, if I can say it that way, <laughs> um, who takes on the limitations of incarnation and comes to earth. So obviously John 1 is important. I've already alluded to Philippians 2, mm -hmm. which says the same thing in a different way. It talks about him not seeking to you know, hold on to, to grasp uh, his deity, but emptied himself and mm -hmm. taking on the form of a servant. Uh, talking about his taking on humanity. This is, in, of course, in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, part of what most people regard as a hymn there. And so, um, so we've got these texts that indicate that Jesus consciously took on the role of, of becoming human on our, on our behalf and ministering to a world that needed deliverance. Mm -hmm. When Jesus says things like, I have come, does that kind of allude to that as well? It can. Uh, it, it can just be kind of a mission statement about why he's come, I've mm. come for this reason. But it probably does allude to the idea of why he was sent. There's a ton of sent language, particularly in the Gospel of John, the Father has sent me. Uh, he refers to himself as the sent one, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with being sent to, this, for the, to and for this mission and uh, to accomplish um, the, these, these um, goals related to salvation that he has come to, to uh, perform, as well as, of course, he models the way in which uh, someone who's a human being can and should walk with God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he came down from heaven, uh, hints at preexistence and deity as well. That's correct. It suggests that he has a heavenly origin. He's already confessed that he's true God, that he's light from light, those kinds of things to mm -hmm. make the point. This is a divine figure who's doing this, and then he steps into to earth and takes on the incarnation and the limits of humanity at the same time. Mm -hmm.
Now, for some of our skeptical friends, it's pretty hard to imagine that something like this could actually happen. Um, but if we think about uh, reasons why the church might make something up like this, uh, would, would it help at all to help uh, the Christian faith win Jewish converts? Uh, no, the background for this, sometimes skeptics will make a point that uh, this is being done on the basis of models coming out of the Greco-Roman world uh, and really is a later development in the church. But uh, I just don't think that works. Um, you are in the first century. The predominance of believers, at least initially, are coming out of a Jewish background. Uh, they don't uh, care for anything of the mixture of the kind of mythic stories where you get gods responsible for the birth of great kings, which is the where usually where the parallel is said to come from. Uh, and that's certainly not the way this passage is is being conceived because in in the Greco-Roman world, a human being gets promoted to the level of a god because of the quality of leadership that they give, the mm -hmm. way in which they lead. It's a way of honoring someone by saying, oh, he uh, watched over us like a god. Mm -hmm. um, and and with that promotion, you kind of go to the bottom of the pantheon. You know, you don't you don't get to sit next to Zeus. Um, um, but what is being depicted in the Christian faith is not anything like that at all. This is this is a declaration of God choosing to take on humanity. After all, if He's the Creator, if He runs, manages, sustains the creation, He can handle the creation in any way that He wants and desires, he can be as creative within it as anything that allowed the creation to begin with. So that's the backdrop against which this is done. And then and then he steps in and, and takes in on humanity this way. And Jesus doesn't go to the bottom of any pantheon, because mm -hmm. there is, in one sense, no pantheon to be a member of. There's mm -hmm. only one God. Right. And, uh, and he sits uh, – he's portrayed as sitting with God the Father in heaven being part of this Trinitarian relationship, and that's something God does on his behalf. This uh, And so the Spirit is very involved in the virgin birth from the very beginning, um, and this is a unique doctrine. It doesn't have connections to either this um, Greco-Roman pagan background, mm -hmm. and it certainly is um, a, a stretch for Jewish belief as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was kind of a, a, an embarrassment, if I can say it that way, as a um, it, it caused suspicion on Jesus and Mary. You know, they're creating a doctrine that, in one sense, steps into very controversial space mm -hmm. if it's if it's not true. And so, you know, these very difficult things, sometimes the apologetic is, well, the reason they're there is because they were there. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't invent it this way because you're right. creating more problems from your, for yourself than you really need to create for yourself if it isn't a part, real part of the story. Mm -hmm. And they didn't go around talking about the virgin birth all the time. It wasn't a key part of their, their preaching. No. Um, uh, it, you know, the, the two passages I mentioned are the two places where it's most explicitly mentioned. Uh, although there are other places that hint about Jesus being preexistent and coming to coming to earth uh, or that emphasize his role as creator and then contrast that with the work that he did on earth as Redeemer Colossians 1 being an example of this. Uh, and so, so, no, they didn't talk directly about the event itself, but they did talk a lot about the fact that Jesus came from heaven and mm -hmm. took on humanity. There are a variety of ways in which that's said in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so what we have coming together here then is Jesus' heavenly origin and his being born on earth. That's right. This this idea that here is – I call it Jesus is one in a gazillion and a gazillion is a big number. <laughs> this is, this is 
the uniqueness of Jesus, mm-hmm. and that is that he is both fully God and fully man, uh, now uh, now incarnate in a human body. Uh, that is in contrast, by the way, to docetism, which would say that it's beneath God to take on any kind of material characteristics, anything like that. It's an idea that's struggled with in some religions today. For, for Muslims, for example, mm-hmm. the idea that God could be human and go through human functions and have human limitations right. is something that they see as an affront to the doctrine of God. But in fact, in the Christian faith, it's seen as uh, actually an illustration of how committed God is to participate in his creation, to condescend to it, to be a reflection of it, and to care for those who are a part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, now we move to the death and the burial of Jesus, and the Creed goes on to say that for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. And in Greek it says that this happened huper uh, hemon, either for us or because of us, maybe even on our behalf. Uh, how do we understand that phraseology? This is usually understood to be some type of substitution where he bears um, the penalty for our sin. He takes on that which we're unable to take care of for ourselves. So um, on our behalf or in place of us Mm -hmm. is the idea here. Some form – obviously we benefit from that. It it, it becomes for us. But usually it's the substitutionary idea that's in view here. Uh, There's a variety of pictures that are applied to it, but again, uh, the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the one who bears our reproach, um, is a picture of, of what we're talking about here. The way in which sacrifices in the Old, in the Old Testament were undertaken in which an animal um, suffers for in our place, mm-hmm. and in some cases you put the hands on, on, on the sacrifice to show the transfer of the responsibility, those variety of, of images um, inform what's going on here. So, you know, you always have to wear uh, – my joke is you always have to wear your yarmulke when you read the New Testament. <laughs> you got you to think Jewishly to mm-hmm. and what the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament are saying mm-hmm. because that often forms the background for what's going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the theological uh, component of this. The historical component of this is sometimes people have questions about the historicity of the crucifixion. But from a scholarly perspective, basically nobody questions this is one of the bedrock things about Jesus, isn't it? Well, you do meet a few people who try and try and question this, <laughs> but uh, most most people working even in classical scholarship recognize this is actually for an ancient event very well attested. Not only do we have the testimony of the Gospels, but we have uh, uh, a snippet of Josephus that most scholars uh, recognize as authentic. It's debated, but some mm-hmm. recognize as authentic that talk about a death under Pontius Pilate. We have uh, allusions as well in, in the Roman historian Tacitus in a mm-hmm. work called The Annals, which uh, also alludes in, in indirectly – well, it alludes to the death directly, the death under Pontius Pilate. So it alludes to crucifixion as well. So Jesus is portrayed as having been slain uh, under uh, under Pontius Pilate. And everything about the Jewish response to Jesus in the official rabbinic documents uh, assumes uh, his life. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, those who argue that Jesus is a complete um, myth who's been made up by the early church, um, you're dismissing a ton of multiply attested 
um, testimonies to the fact that Jesus existed, and even and that even applies to his death. Mm-hmm. And nobody could have survived the full procedure. Oh, you're, well, you're talking about the actual crucifixion yeah. itself. Yes, the crucifixion was an extremely horrific way to die. Involved uh, terrific suffering. Uh, it was so horrific that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. They were they were protected from this extreme form of punishment. Uh, it was a death that was designed to communicate shame and to scare people. Uh, and uh, and this is the death that Jesus uh, actually chose to undertake. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's mm-hmm. it's his testimony before both the Jewish leadership in particular before the Jewish leadership, that leads them to take him to Pilate for the charge of sedition. And so Jesus consciously produces the testimony that leads to his own death because um, the Jewish leadership doesn't believe what he's claiming about himself. Mm -hmm. And then it talks about the burial as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We read about that in Mark 15 and uh, Luke 23, that Jesus was uh, put in this tomb. But some people will say, well, Weren't a lot of people thrown into shallow graves and, and whatnot? How do we know Jesus was put in the in a tomb? Well, again, I think that you're dealing here with traditions in which there are people still alive who went through mm. some of these events. Mm-hmm. And so to put forward a tradition that's completely uh, fabricated, has nothing to do with the truth, um, is a problem. And you never get any indication from Jewish sources uh, that that point to the idea uh, that Jesus um, uh, that Jesus was just left to rot on a on a on a on a cross, which is the, what this alternative theory basically is that he's taken like any criminal and put in a in a generic grave. Um, the the sense that we have is is that he was really buried in a location that was that was determined. He was buried according and in, in a way actually that honored Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. If you were a felon. If you were convicted as a felon, you couldn't be buried in a family tomb. Hmm. And Jesus is not buried in a family tomb. He's buried in the tomb that is provided by Joseph of Arimathea, who's not a family member, but just a fellow Jew. And so that actually honors uh, Jewish tradition. So just as Pilate was gracious in granting the body to Joseph, Joseph buries him in a way that fits with um, what Jewish tradition says about the way someone who had um, been crucified should be buried if they're going to get a separate burial. Mm-hmm. So for uh, us as Christians, we believe these things historically, and we believe these things theologically That's as well. That's correct. And yeah, they, they operate at both levels. Yeah, and so the Creed is, is highlighting both of those things. That's correct. So I think we're starting to see a snapshot of the gospel that's, that's, that's being presented for us as we take a look at this Creed and the things that Jesus did. Yes, uh, it's very, very true. We're talking about a death for sin. We're talking about uh, Jesus taking on humanity uh, on our behalf, uh, bearing sin as one who has walked with God perfectly. Uh, it's the language of the book of Hebrews. And so, uh, so yeah, so we've set the table, and then all that's left is the vindication part. You know, we've got a dead Jesus after he's crucified, but on the third day he rises from the dead. The creed moves on to confess this, of course, as mm-hmm. we're going to talk about. And that represents the vindication of God because Jesus actually announced where he was going 
before the resurrection mm. happened when he was on trial before the Jewish leadership. Unpack that a little bit more for us, um, Jesus uh, being vindicated at the resurrection. Yeah, uh, the point here is, is that there's a huge dispute going on before the Jewish leadership at his trial. The Jewish leaders think that Jesus is blaspheming God, that he is insulting God by the kinds of prerogatives that he claims for himself, things like forgiving sin. And, and, that, uh, and that these claims about the tightness of his relationship to the Father are causes for offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is claiming that God's going to exalt him so that when the tomb goes empty, he, basically his answer at the trial when he talks about uh, riding the clouds as the Son of Man and, and the Lord seating him as uh, – God seating him as Lord at his, at his right hand, combination of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, is God's going to vindicate me. Mm-hmm. And that vindication is God's vote in our dispute. Mm-hmm. So when that tomb goes empty, I've told you that God has taken me to his right hand to share in this judgment authority that because that's the picture of Daniel 7, the Son of Man rides the clouds to receive judgment authority. And so you're accountable uh, not just to the God of Israel, you're also accountable to me. Mm-hmm. So you may sentence me to death, but one day this whole scene is going to be reversed. I will not be the defendant and you will not be the judges, <laughs> but you will be the defendant and I will be the judge. And that's not going to be a good scene if you crucify me. Mm-hmm. So um, so th- that's the, the picture of the claim. So when the tomb goes empty, um, I, I often joke about this. Jesus says, in effect, you can write me at www.righthandofgod.com. Uh, I will be alive and will be in communication with the creation. I will be a part of God's rule and of God's kingdom, and we will go from there. I want to start out this section by talking about uh, an older creed, much older than 325 AD, and this is the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. where the Apostle Paul quotes this ancient creed. Um, from way before Nicaea, way before the New Testament documents were even written. And part of it says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised up on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, by the time we get to 325, we read something very similar in the Nicene Creed. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Do you know if this came from the same creed, or what's the connection here? Well, no, what's happening in the creed is that it spots, it it mirrors scriptural language, but it doesn't do it the way we do it today, which is when we do that, we might put in parentheses the verse that it came from. It mm-hmm. just mirrors that language. And so that's what you're getting here. You're getting a mirroring of of First uh, Corinthians 15 language, particularly with the um, with the refrain according to the scripture, mm. with a strong continuity, it kind of highlights the idea that this wasn't something the church was making up in 325. No, no, no. The church is summarizing something that it's believed for centuries, and it's uh, and it's articulating in very crisp form. Uh, the core teachings in this section about Jesus, but in in the document as a whole, it's confession uh, of the Trinity. And so this this wording, which of course uh, was originally written in in 325 and then was updated mm-hmm. in 381, um, uh, is an attempt to allude back and show the scriptural roots. So every now and again, you get a phrase 
For example, uh, the creation of things visible and invisible. Interestingly enough, talking about God the Father, but in the New Testament, that's the language that gets applied to the Son, mm-hmm. um, is another example of the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about Paul receiving this, the church is very careful to, to be passing on what was handed down by the apostles. That's exactly right. We're dealing here with the very core doctrine that goes back to the very earliest times of the church in terms of what's believed. Now, there were a lot of ways in which those beliefs were expressed, a lot of terminology applied to it. And in the case of this creed, there's terminology that's explanatory, that's designed to develop uh, what was believed so that when we get to the discussion of the person of Jesus earlier on in the creed, we've got technical terms being used with regard to the, you know, one in essence with mm-hmm. the Father and that kind of thing, which which took centuries really to to sort out in terms of what's the exact way to express what this relationship is. But in this section of the creed where we're basically articulating things that Jesus did in his life and ministry, these you could almost go back to the Gospels and you could say, oh, that line is that passage and that line is that passage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we think about Paul receiving this material, again, he's the persecutor beforehand and then he, he has an encounter with Jesus. Um, as we're talking about the resurrection, how does the Apostle Paul receiving this tradition, um, even converting to the Christian faith, how does that help us with the historical case for Jesus' resurrection? Well, Paul was originally someone who didn't believe any of this and who knew what the official Jewish position was against Jesus and deeply held to it as a deeply held conviction. He got converted to the faith, if you want to use that language, he saw a vision of God, and actually in his mind, he basically completed what had already been promised to Judaism. So in his mind, it probably wasn't as much a conversion as we tend to talk about it as much as it was a change of mind about Jesus. Anyway, um, this experience probably took place somewhere around uh, 18 months after the crucifixion itself and after the resurrection itself. So we're literally on top of the timing of these events with this high Christology Mm. that Paul confesses that he believes that he is drawn to by seeing the risen Lord. You know, -hmm. know, we talked about that tomb being empty and Mm -hmm. what it meant. Yeah. Uh, And so so he would have recognized that that he probably heard some of the preaching of the apostles and persecuting them, et cetera, or certainly was aware of what they taught. And uh, all of a sudden it dawned on him, you know, that stuff that I'm hearing from those guys, it's actually looks to be pretty true, uh, and, uh, and he got to spend a couple of days in reflection uh, after that experience, and, and then, of course, became one of the chief theologians of the first century church. Yeah, so it's not the case that only Jesus' friends who missed him so much or whatever saw him. We have people like Paul who were enemies of the Yeah, faith. exactly right, and who knew and who knew what was going on in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. knew the burial situation, knew knew what the official Jewish position was because he held it. Uh, in fact, he had Christians arrested for what they believed mm-hmm. and was responsible for that. Uh, was a witness to the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, you know, he's aware of all that. All that is going on, and even in the midst of being aware of that, he became convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, it was pretty surprising to Jesus' uh, disciples that he would rise from the dead. Um, but the, on the other hand, it's almost like it shouldn't have been that surprising to them as Jesus uh, himself actually unpacked that all this was according to the scriptures. Help us understand that a little bit. Well, I think the problem here is is that um, the belief in a Messiah in earliest Judaism really had the idea that he would come and bring victory, that there would they didn't have the, any association with the idea that a Messiah would suffer. So 
they were anticipating what I call the Arnold Schwarzenegger Messiah, <laughs> you know, um, uh, and, and, it, and it doesn't get as far as I'll be back. It's just simply uh, – it's simply – um, this powerful, victorious figure who's going to conquer everything. So when he, it, it, the text says when he announced the fact that he was going to suffer and be given over and rise on the third day, it says the disciples didn't understand this, and I don't think that means they didn't get his words. You know, mm-hmm. they couldn't, mm-hmm. they couldn't unpack the language of what he was saying. They couldn't get how that fit into the program. They, they didn't understand how it would be possible for Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. That just and, – and the other issue here is, is that there is no view of a resurrection in the midst of history. You know, resurrection mm-hmm. is something Jews believe happened at the end of history in preparation for the final judgment. So you've got a couple of things that are going on here for which there wasn't the expectation. And, and sometimes if you don't have the expectation, you won't see it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think is going on here. So Jesus would repeat himself. They wouldn't get it. And not only did they not get it, they didn't even get it at the end because there's no indication that they really thought, okay, well, we'll just count to the third day. And they're counting inclusively. Each right. part of a day counts. We'll count on the third day, and then we'll just wait for something to happen. Now, the women who went to the tomb went to the tomb to anoint a dead body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were caught very off guard when, when they got to the tomb, their services were no longer required. <laughs> <laughs> well, the women, again, uh, a great example of uh, more evidence for the historical resurrection right. of Jesus. You wouldn't make up a story that says, we're going to sell a very difficult idea that most of the culture doesn't buy, the idea of a bodily resurrection. And the way we're going to do that is use people as witnesses, as the first witnesses who don't count culturally as witnesses, women generally speaking weren't viewed as someone whose testimony could or should be uh, honored and approached. There are only very limited circumstances in which a woman's testimony counted in a, in a, in a legal and cultural situation. So you're not going to make up a story that has a very difficult event that you're trying to prove and have the first people to vouch for it be people who don't count culturally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is kind of like the virgin birth thing as well. Why make it harder for the Christian uh, message to be accepted, right? That's right. The only reason that you got difficulties in it is because the difficulties were there in a part of the story. Yeah. Another question people tend to ask is, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And the next part of the creed actually says he ascended into heaven mm-hmm. and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, we, we see this language in in Mark 14 and Mark 16, but help us understand what it means to actually be seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, this is language that comes from Psalm 110.1. It's the language of exaltation. It is put in a context where clearly we're talking about a seating that takes place in heaven. Jesus is sitting with God in heaven. Now, again, I, I alluded to this earlier, you got to put on your yarmulke for a second. got to mm-hmm. think Jewishly. There's mm-hmm. only one God. There's only one God who receives honor and glory. There's only one God who's worshiped. Uh, there's only uh, there, there's only one God who runs things. So how is it that someone could sit with God in heaven? I like to say park with God in heaven hmm. and share in His authority and His honor, uh, be worshipped, etc. That says something about the person who's seated with God. Mm-hmm. And so this right hand of God is talking about this position of authority that God has 
has established for Jesus by raising him from the dead, showing who he is and who he was all along. And in the midst of that, um, Jesus steps into a role of authority that he then exercises from that point on, so much so that the church confessed him as the Lord Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. showing this authority that he possesses. Mm -hmm. And if in a monotheistic context, God doesn't share his glory with another, What's going on here? Exactly. Right? If someone can share the throne with God, can be seated with him, uh, share uh, the perceptions of him, do the acts and with the authority that he possesses. I mean, you're getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. These are religious rites being carried out in the name of the deity. Uh, then you're communicating something about who you think Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, he came down from heaven once, then he ascended. But the creed says he's coming back. That's right. He's coming back. The creed says he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. What are some ways that, that we see pre, uh, Jesus presenting himself as, as the eschatological judge? Well, the key way that he does it is by the very name that he prefers to refer to himself, which is Son of Man. This hmm. is a title that comes out of Daniel 7. Uh, it's a unique image in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, the, it's a human being. Son of man simply means son of a human being, so it's like saying Carol's son or John's son. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a human being. It's, it, it's a, a human descendant, but he's riding the clouds. Only, God's ride the, only God rides the clouds in the, in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So it's a picture of, of a divine activity possessed by a human being who goes to receive judgment authority from the Father. That's the, from the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. So this is a picture of total authority, and this is the way Jesus referred to himself. And then the church preached, uh, particularly to Gentile audiences, uh, that God had appointed one to be the judge of the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. and. and mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, this judgment authority is another responsibility that shows uh, who he is, and is an, it, it points to the fact that he is the eschatological judge, that he will be the one uh, making the call in the end. So it's probably a good idea to be properly related to him. <laughs> That's right. Well, it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, mm -hmm. which is clearly at the last day, mm -hmm. people are, are appealing to him as the eschatological judge using that term, that term Lord, right? Yeah, when he responds and says, away from me, I never knew you, that's not what you want to hear. No. <laughs> yeah. So now we want to talk about some of the implications of, of these, uh, these truths that we have discussed together. We see Jesus' uh, humanity and deity coming together in, in this, uh, this language that we've been looking at. How does denying Jesus' uh, deity, for example, um, whether someone in Islam, someone in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, or even critical scholars who reject Jesus' um, uh, deity. What does that do to one's understanding of salvation in the Christian view? Well, what it does is it disqualifies Jesus from being the Savior, so mm -hmm. it kind of discounts that there is a salvation that's on offer from him. So it, um, you know, he's able to uh, have the authority to, to bear sin and and to undertake the bearing of sin in part because of the position that he occupies. And then on the flip side, on the eschatological judge side, if he doesn't have the authority to be God, then he's it puts him in a difficult place in terms of the exercising of judgment. It certainly doesn't make sense out of baptism hmm. because if I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the Son is not um, does not have the divine authority to to, as, as the one who portrays what the washing of baptism represents, 
I've lost something there. So all these um, activities that the church has that portray the authority of Jesus get eviscerated uh, by uh, by a denial of Jesus' deity. And so, you know, Jesus is the is a divine savior. He's not a mm-hmm. human savior. Mm-hmm. This is part of what makes Christianity unique. Um, and so, you're, what the reason the creed exists in part is to make the point: you cannot believe authentically as a Christian and not believe that Jesus is divine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, we think about um, if Jesus wasn't divine, then he would be reduced to a good example for us, maybe. Um, certainly not someone who's mighty to save, or perhaps a great figure who who has been. Um, uh, connected to uh, to the salvation process, but but Jesus and the New Testament doesn't allow you that option. I tell mm-hmm. people that really there are two options for Jesus in the New Testament. He mm-hmm. either is who he claims to be, and so the exaltation really happened and God showed who he was, or he is a blasphemer. He's made claims far beyond what any human being should. And the Jewish leadership is right. Those are your; those are the two options on the table coming out of the New Testament, and the resurrection. This is why it's in all the creeds. Mm-hmm. Um, the resurrection is God's vote in that dispute, and it reduces those two options down to one. You know, C.S. Lewis has the famous <laughs> liar, lunatic, or Lord. Yes, um, what's called the trilemma. And I tease people. I say that's way too complicated <laughs> as far as the New Testament is concerned. Mm-hmm. Jesus is either from above. Or he's from below. That's that. Those are the two options. He will not allow you to have him occupy that middle space of being a religious worthy or a great example. Mm-hmm. That he's not a prophet. That's not the category that he's put in. He either is responsible for um, executing the salvation that the program of the Father has laid out, or he isn't. Mm-hmm. And and those are your two options on the table. Yeah. So he's not just the greatest man who ever lived. He's That's not right. just an exalted prophet. <laughs> That's right. Um, he's either the Lord of all or not Lord at all. Right. That's correct. And so you know, this is simple math. You got two options. You take one away. You got <laughs> one left. And uh, and that's the picture of what you're getting. And the creed is trying to um, affirm that uh, very, very clearly. You know, the bulk of the creed really is about the Son. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a one-sentence discussion of the Father at the start. There's a paragraph that covers the Spirit and a few um, implications of the Trinity and the program of God at the end. But the bulk of this creed deals with the person of Jesus Christ on the one hand and the work that he performs on Mm -hmm. the other. Yeah, it's a very, very Christocentric uh, creed. That's correct. So Jesus' uh, deity is very strongly affirmed. How does denying Jesus' humanity – now we'll flip it – we'll ask, how does denying Jesus' humanity affect the atonement? Well, it it gets in the way of his ability to represent us, um, Mm -hmm. that that his humanity – you know, his ability to identify with us, the ability to show that you can go through life as a human being mm-hmm. and and not sin. Uh, you can walk with God uh, and, and then to represent us as a perfect um, sacrifice in our place. All that is at risk if uh, there isn't this connection, this solidarity with humanity that Jesus takes on in the Incarnation. And so, um, so, so the 
you know, part of the core of what makes the work on the cross possible is the fact that Jesus as a human being dies as a human being to take on the debt that human beings have before God and to take their place as a human being on their behalf. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like what uh, Anselm of Canterbury wrote about in uh, Curdeus Homo. Why, why did God have to become a man? Try right. technically called penal substitution is mm. what we're talking about. That uh, he bears the penalty and uh, he bears the penalty for us by becoming the substitution that bears that penalty on our behalf. And in the midst of doing that, uh, our ability to be declared righteous and to be uh, and not be held accountable for sins that we have be committed becomes possible. So this is a huge part of the program of God that Jesus be seen as human and be seen in taking on this representative role. It allows um, Paul to make the contrast, the great contrast that he does in Romans 5 between people who are in Adam and people who are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, J- Jesus is portrayed as a second Adam. Mm-hmm. You can't be a second Adam unless you have basic Adamic <laughs> qualifications, which means that you're human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we see that in Paul as well. So mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of walked through the whole gospel mm-hmm. through, through the second part of the creed. We have uh, who Jesus is, what he's done, and then implications for us. Uh, what would you say would be, just from this portion of the creed, what would the implications be for, for uh, somebody who's, who's responding to this? Well, obviously, um, the key thing that's portrayed here is the sense of gratitude one mm. would have for someone taking on a debt that really is their own responsibility. Um, this is this this is at the core of what grace is, and grace is supposed to be a terrific motivator for faithfulness towards God. I have a gratitude because I understand the debt that has been paid on my behalf. Jesus has a wonderful parable in Luke seven in the midst of being anointed by the sinful woman in which he talks about a man who has um, a small debt and a second man who has a much greater debt, mm-hmm. and they're both being forgiven. And he asks the Pharisee as he's telling the parable, okay, which one do you think would have loved him more? And the Pharisee answers quite correctly, um, though I suppose the one who's been forgiven the greater debt. And so the mm-hmm. sense is the greater my sense of appreciation for the amount of debt that God has canceled on my behalf on the basis of his grace, the greater will be my love, will be my gratitude and my love and my responsiveness to God. So I like to tell people, if you're having trouble being responsive to God, it may be because you have a sense of entitlement that God owes you this in some way. Mm. And the moment you move in that direction, you actually undercut the way grace works, because the way grace works is, as I understand, someone has undertaken something for me on my behalf that he didn't have to undertake, mm-hmm. and that that actually uh, removes me from a from a deep condition of need and debt, takes it out of the way. Um, I'd be, I, I would have gratitude towards that person. I, the illustration I like to use: imagine you had a huge debt, like a house mortgage, mm-hmm. that you couldn't pay, and the banker. Uh, when you couldn't pay, instead of saying, well, we're going to take your house because you defaulted on the mortgage, says, here, I'm going to write a check for the amount of that house. Go cash it. The house is yours. Mm-hmm. You'd probably tell your neighbors about that banker. Yeah. Okay? That's the picture of the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well this, this snapshot of the gospel that we see in, in this section emphasizes Jesus' uh, divinity and humanity. We see how he comes down from heaven, but then he's also born on earth. Mm-hmm. And then we see his uh, suffering and dying 
on earth as well, but then his resurrection and his ascension shows us that his work of salvation for us is in fact efficacious. That's right. And then of course the the latter part of this confession of the creed talks about his return because mm-hmm. he's not done. There's a judge, judgment that he's going to exercise. His kingdom is never going to end. Yes. Once established, it's there forever and ever. And so uh, this is someone to whom you're accountable. One of the core ideas coming out of the Bible, particularly for people who have no biblical background, who don't understand Genesis from Malachi or Matthew from Revelation, Mm -hmm. who really know nothing about the biblical story, the key way into conversation with them in the New Testament in the first century was, well, there's a creator and you're a creature and you're accountable in your relationship with him. It's an allusion to the idea of being made in the image of God. We're made for relationship with God. And, and, um, and we're talking about uh, reestablishing that relationship with, that has been broken by sin and the accountability that we have. So there's a reminder that at the end, everyone will give an account. You will huh, become quite aware that you're accountable <laughs> to God. And so you want to think about how you appro- uh, approach that, that assessment that's coming one day. Mm-hmm. Well, his kingdom will have no end. The kingdom is a huge part of his preaching. And how do we tie the the messianic um, theme into the kingdom there? Well, of course, the Messiah is the one who delivers. There's a rule that is anticipated that will cover the entirety of the earth one day. It will come... Uh, It will come according to Revelation 20 in the thousand-year reign initially, and then a new heaven and a new earth eventually, and uh, and, and where he will express his sovereignty across the creation. Eventually, he will bring a shalom Mm -hmm. that touches all the creation. Uh, that's part of the program. So, so the the creed is alluding to the consummation of this kingdom promise in the resolution and restoration of the creation. That one day is actually the goal of the entire program. It isn't just to save individuals; it's actually to restore the creation to, mm. to fullness and wholeness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, our response then to Jesus, uh, when we respond positively to him, actually we get to enter that kingdom now. That's right. We get to enter the, that kingdom now. We, we, we get the benefits of forgiveness of sins. We mm-hmm. also get the benefit of the provision of the Spirit, which enables us to walk with God. This is the story of Romans. People are dead at the beginning, and they are uh, uh, declared righteous, and then they get the Spirit of God so they can walk with God, and they look forward to the consummation one day. Romans 8 looks forward to the day when creation stops groaning. Oh, amen. Thanks so much for being with us today, Daryl. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.